You are listening to episode 13 of the Almost Sideways podcast. On today's episode, we discuss the recent Oscar nominations and our reactions to them. Uh, we all review the new Steven Spielberg movie, The Post. We also look at the month of February with our most anticipated films and looking at those that are celebrating anniversaries. And our power rankings goes to the most notable Oscar snubs of the 21st century. All this coming up on the Almost Sideways podcast. Here we go. Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. This is all totally not getting cut out. Yes. We are go for launch. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. Episode 13. 13, always 13. Why did it have to be 13, Zach? Comes after 12. There we go. There we go. Well, once again, I'm Terry Plucknett hosting this uh, little charade here. And uh, with me once again, we have Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. How's it going, guys? It's going great. I'm excited to talk about this stuff and the post. That should be an interesting conversation. I can't wait. In the words of Bark Scott, can't wait. Well, we're coming to you, uh, we're recording on Sunday morning. Uh, it is uh, the morning of, you know, the biggest sports event of the year, and that, of course, is the Pro Bowl. Over under uh, five minutes of the Pro Bowl you'll be watching today. Under. Uh, <laughs> can we get, like, negative time? <laughs> uh, probably could. Anyways, uh, thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, make sure you subscribe and uh, rate and review us so we can be heard by more people. Uh, the big news, actually, of this week that we wanted to start with... This time of year, we talk a whole lot about the awards season, and this last week, we finally got our Oscar nominations for the 2017 movies... I'm going to toss it to Todd, and Todd, tell us what you thought of the nominations and some of your observations. Well, uh, every year, a few hours after the uh, awards get announced, I write my reactions article and well, what stood out to me and uh, running down my predictions. It actually was, I think, my highest overall percentage correct that I've ever had. I aced five categories, Best Actor, Actress, Cinematography, Production Design, and Sound Mixing. Usually those are not... Uh, categories that I do so well on, but I actually, I, I was up 5% from last year, and as far as last January's predictions for this year, I only got six correct nominations of the main categories, Mudbound for Adapted Screenplay, Woody Harrelson for Supporting Actor in another movie, uh, <laughs> Does that Gary count? Oldman for Best Actor, <laughs> I'm counting it, uh, Gary in Oldman, Daniel Day-Lewis for what Best Actor, he, make? he was in The Glass Castle, it was the, by the guy who did Short Term 12. Oh, yeah. I remember that movie. I, I, clearly, the Academy didn't. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a great movie. He was pretty good in it, but it didn't work out. And uh, Darkest Hour in Dunkirk, I predicted getting Best Picture nomination. So those were the six things that carried over. So I actually do get something right. It just wasn't exactly Birdman winning Best Picture like I predicted a few years ago. Did anyone have Woody Harrelson nominated for The Glass Castle? Like, Was that your like secret in their eyes long shot pick? I don't know. It, this was a year ago when I, was I predicted that. I say, it was that, January so. predictions. Everything was a long shot pick. <laughs> I had The Glass Castle getting nominated for Best Director and Picture, too, so I, I don't know. 
It seemed like a good choice at the time. Uh, other things that stood out, Netflix got its first major nominations with Adapted Screenplay and Best Supporting Actress for Mary J. Blige, so that wall has been broken, just not quite for Best Picture yet, but it's only a matter of time if they keep getting movies like that. Uh, some cool first-time nominees, we got Sam Rockwell, Jordan Peele, Greta Gerwig, Kumail Nanjiani, and uh, the long-overdue Allison Janney. Uh, some snubs that I saw, I always write my top ten biggest snubs, some ones that stood out that changed things. Uh, Martin McDonough for Best Director, which really opened up Best Picture, because Argo won Best Picture without a Director nomination, but that was like, it was like a really rare thing. Uh, Army Hammer for Best Supporting Actor, I always, I think of him as like our generation's Rock Hudson, like, he may get a nomination eventually, but for some reason, like, he just isn't looked at as like a, a serious actor for whatever reason. Uh, Get Out, missing out on Best Editing kind of hurts its chances at Best Picture, even though Birdman won without an editing nomination uh, in 2014. James Franco missed out on Best Actor because of his uh, sexual misconduct allegations coming out the worst possible time. But maybe the most egregious one is Michael Stuhlbarg not getting nominated for Best Supporting Actor because he ended up getting nominated in, or he ended up getting, or he was in three of the Best Picture nominees. Which, in 2002, John C. Riley was nominated for doing that same feat, but I think Stuhlbarg in two of the movies was better than Riley was in any of those movies, and it just is weird that he keeps, like, Stuhlbarg keeps getting snubbed year in and year out. And I think that it's possible that if there are only five nominees this year, that he still, uh, that he still would have been in three nominees. What do you guys think? What do you guys think? If there were five nominees this year, what do you think it would be? That's a good question. That is a really good question. So like, I don't think I, I think uh, Lady Bird, The Shape of Water, and Dunkirk would all be for sure. And uh, I still think three billboards outside of Missouri. And I'm leaning toward Get Out, but I think the post would also be a definite possibility because for me, Phantom Thread seems like the 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 movie that would only have a direct nomination, not picture, just like it like the Mike Lee movie of the year or something like that. Yeah, and you could probably say the same for Call Me By Your Name as well, even though that didn't yeah. get a, a director nomination. But I don't know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if Get Out gets in if there's only five nominees, and yet it's the film that, gun to my head, I feel like is going to win Best Picture. So there you go. Well, I mean, I, the same could be said about Argo at the same time, right? But, I mean, Get, get Out also got the Best Director nomination, which... It would be hard to look, if you're looking back on the history of the Academy for seeing Get Out nominated for Best Director and not nominated for Best Picture. That'd be a really, that'd be a really bizarre thing to want to see. So, Todd, yeah. do you think that this year is a really open race? Because I get the sense that four of these films could win Best Picture, and it wouldn't be surprising really at all. Yeah, I don't, I don't see all that much separation between Three Billboards, Lady Bird, Get Out, and The Shape of Water. They, they all have different things going for them. I, I think right now the favorite's probably Lady Bird, but I, I, it's, it's really hard to, <laughs> it's really hard to choose between those. It's strange because I would have said uh, Three Billboards would have been the favorite coming off its Golden Globe win, but the non-nomination for McDonough really hurts it quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, it was nominated for every single other thing that it should be, though, or could be necessarily i mean and which two best supporting actor nominations and it was nominated for score editing everything except for director which makes that even more of a confusing uh oversight for the academy 
I really think it's a it's a three horse race here. You've got three billboards, Lady Bird and Get Out. The Shape of Water is kind of like the the technical darling that always uh, seeps in. And what's interesting, Todd, is a couple months ago, after the SAG nominations came out, we said it was down to three billboards, Lady Bird and Get Out, because they were the ones that were actual legitimate contenders that were nominated for Best Ensemble, which has kind of been an indicator moving forward. And at that point, it sounded like that was crazy. But now, those are the three frontrunners. Well, but The Shape of Water is kind of a strange case because it was nominated for three SAG awards but not the ensemble and it won the producers guild and it won the the uh what the the critics choice like it, it that that movie's racking up all the awards it just doesn't have that SAG ensemble nomination which is just a really bizarre snub now that you look at it with three acting nominations kind of like so, La La Land well that only had two and that wasn't exactly an ensemble an ensemble uh, movie. The Shape of Water has like a, has a pretty monster cast, and they all are are really good performances. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked to hear you say, Terry, that you don't think Shape of Water is one of the leading candidates. I mean, I would if I were to take out one of them, it would be like three billboards because it's too divisive for Oscar voters. I mean, The Shape of Water leads in all nominations. It got nominated for Best Director, and and, and Del Toro was the front runner. And it's a film that will get a mass consensus behind it. It will be in a lot of top three or top four ballots. So I think it has a real shot. Yeah, yeah it was one nomination of... short of the all-time record. It, had, it got 13, and the record was 14, which was tied by La La Land last year, actually. But you look back over the last few years, outside of Birdman, when was the last time director and picture went to the same movie? Well, the, it was the artist, but... Which was before they started their new voting structure. So Birdman is the only time that that has happened, and Del Toro is going to win Best Director. And yeah, right. and Birdman winning Best Picture was kind of an upset, too, because everyone was still kind of expecting Boyhood to potentially win that one. I think it's going to be hard for Shape of Water to win, especially when you've got three others that look like such strong candidates. And there's uh, the stuff coming out about how they may have like stolen the story from some uncredited screenplay or unproduced screenplay at one point. Like that's sort of making its waves now too, making it look kind of bad. Hey Todd, can you tell the world your theory about why Phantom Thread got so many nominations? Because I've been telling people this theory a lot, attributing it to myself, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, well the, yeah, the screeners didn't go out. That's why I didn't get nominated at the SAG awards, I guess. But yeah, in the end, uh, enough people saw it and. Uh, it still is kind of a strange choice to be recognized in so many ways that it was, but... I just thought it was a good theory. Like, the screeners come out at a very convenient time, right when they're starting to put their ballots together. It would make sense that it gets all these, you know, surprising amount of nominations when, you know, three billboards and Get Out and a few others maybe get overlooked. Yeah, and it didn't seem that that, that crazy to, to see it mentioned, I guess. It, Best Director was a, was de a, a definite surprise, but uh, may, maybe they finally warmed up to Paul Thomas Anderson. The real question is, when the Boss Baby wins Best Animated Film, <laughs> can we say that it won more Oscars than, you know, The Florida Project or Three Billboards? Or uh, It's a little frightening. I have heard more comments about Boss Baby getting in there than almost any other nomination. 
Well, that, that was it's another ridiculous. thing I wanted to talk about because they, they changed the how you vote on animated feature because like usually the people in that category of the Academy vote on their on that category, but they opened up this year the animated feature anybody could vote on it and vote on whatever movies they wanted, which definitely opens up the door for the Boss Baby and Ferdinand like <laughs> these like average uh, like big budget animated movies that a lot of people saw but aren't any good to get nominated and over the movies that are like the the lower budget animation and the foreign animation like the Ghibli movies or like the Secret of Kells and all those like cool movies that have shown up over the years. But now we're going to get a lot more Boss Baby, but apparently it still didn't work out in the Lego Batman movie's favor, which so, is kind of shocking. So the lesson <laughs> is as always, don't open up to mass audiences because they're stupid. Yeah, well, this is why they had to change the documentary to what they have now, which is a lot more, a lot better, because then you end up with the Hoop Dreams not getting nominated or something. Now, now uh, Todd, okay, now, Todd when you, that, hold on, Todd, when you mentioned uh, first-time nominees, you forgot to mention Kobe Bryant for Best Animated Short. Yeah, uh, Jimmy Kimmel actually pointed out, uh, he, he was going through like the, the records that have been set, he's like, Rachel Morrison got nominated for Best Cinematography. She is the first woman to do that. You know, we have the fifth woman nominated for Best Director, and Kobe Bryant is the tallest person ever nominated for Best Animated Short. <laughs> so, we got that. <laughs> Which is kind of a strange thing. It's a it's a kind of a bizarre little short film, and it is kind of corny. But uh, I, I guess all the people in LA still love Kobe. The question is, does he? Uh, take up all the time at the mic when he accepts the award, or does he pass it off to his co-directors? No. Ooh, pro- pro- I see what you did just, there. Just monopolize the time, yeah. <laughs> no, he'll hog the mic, for sure. He won't have Shaq on stage with him, so he has to hog the mic. Maybe he'll thank Shaq. Another thing I thought was interesting is uh, Casey Affleck stepped down from presenting Frances McDormand her Oscar, which kind of saved us all from an uncomfortable moment of, like, I don't know, probably booze or something. So I was thinking who who is going to replace him, and maybe they just give it to Denzel because he probably finished in second, but he, he's also nominated, so that might be a scheduling issue, but they've done it before, I guess. What, what do you guys think? Who, who's going to present Best Actress? Oh, without a question, Kirk Douglas. <laughs> and Catherine Zeta-Jones. That'd be awesome. It'll be interesting to see. Usually on something like that, they'll go to, like, um... Hollywood legend or something like that. Maybe like Tom Hanks will present it or something. Maybe. They refuse to nominate him for anything, so maybe he'll uh, he'll get on stage to present instead. So at this point, what are your, what are each of us thinking is going to win Best Picture? Because I've already said, I think Get Out's going to win Best Picture. I think it has the critical consensus behind it. Uh, it's the box office monolith. Um, it has the critical support. I think it's pulling an Argo in 2012. I think it's going to pull it off. I'm going with Lady Bird. I think that, uh, I think that it wins uh, Best Original Screenplay, and I think they give uh, Laurie Metcalf Best Supporting Actress in order to make it not seem like they're only giving it Best Picture. I think, I think that's the the winner because I don't think anybody's going to have it all that you know lower than maybe four on its uh, anyone's list. And I'm going to stick with three billboards. I, I think that's uh, that's been the favorite kind of all award season, and I think it has a shot. I think a lot of people are overthinking this. It's gonna win 
It's going to win actress, it's going to win supporting actor, it's going to win original screenplay. Even though it didn't get the uh, director nomination, I think it's still going to pull off picture. This is very interesting. So we should make this, uh, care to make this interesting. <laughs> In what way? Well, I, I think I think we should ha maybe have the same uh, award, or like the, the same incentive for the winner here as we do with our Oscar trivia. Maybe whoever gets it right gets to force the other two to watch a movie of their choice. I'll go with that. Sure. <laughs> Why don't we just make it like the results of our 10th uh, annual Oscar challenge? Ooh. Yes. Just make uh, Best Picture a little bit more, uh, worth more points or something, I don't know. It would be perfect if Adam thinks that The Shape of Water will win Best Picture. Then it's a real four-way race. Todd, I'm glad you brought that up, um, because I was meaning to mention... Uh, yes, the 10th annual Almost Sideways Oscar Challenge is now open. See if you can predict the winners. See if you can do better than us. Um, our good friend from college, Kyle Heck, seems to win every year, but hopefully we will be able to triumph over him this time around. Yeah, we need to have him on the podcast to tell us what will win this year. Yeah, maybe the winner comes on the podcast. I like uh, it. Maybe that's what we do. Is that really an award, though? That feels like a punishment. I was going to say, maybe Last Place should come on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, check the description uh, to the podcast. I'll leave a link there for uh, our Almost Sideways Oscar Challenge. And guys, can you believe we've been doing this for 10 years now with our website? No. It's insane. <laughs> it's scary. Insane. All right, well, let's move on from our, our Oscar talk Kind of. We're going to still stay in the same realm a little bit because the movie that we are all going to talk about as our movie review. I love this movie so much. Some really excellent performances. I did not really like this film at all. Movie Reviews is one of the nominees for Best Picture, and that is The Post, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. Starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this film, see what all of us think. Um, Zach and I saw this um, a week or two ago. Todd just watched it. Zach and I know what each other thinks, so we're going to talk a little bit first, and then we're going to see which one Todd agrees with. Uh, I'm going to start out. Uh, when I think of The Post, I think of a very disappointing movie. Uh... This film is uh, revolving around the release of the Pentagon Papers, um, looking at the cover-ups surrounding the Vietnam War, and it's looking at the Washington Post and the decision on whether or not to publish these reports and publish these uh, papers, even though they were uh, illegally declassified. Um, it's a great idea for a story, and we've had many uh, movies kind of similar in this vein. We had Spotlight, uh, which won Best Picture recently. Um, I also think back to All the President's Men, which uh, was uh, about the Washington Post, kind of in a similar time frame, uh, with uh, just a few uh, months later when it starts talking about Watergate. However, for some reason, this movie just did not work for me. Um, Steven Spielberg now, this decade, has made four historical dramas. 
and all four of them have the same problem. They are overly sentimental and safe. And the post is possibly the worst of them all when it comes to that. Uh, Warhorse, you could say the same thing. Lincoln was probably the best of the four, but that was more because of Daniel Day-Lewis than anything. Uh, Bridge of Spies was somewhere in the middle. But the post, it just had this issue of being too safe. Um, the only redeeming thing it had about the movie to me was the story, which was a great story, and some of the performances. But even the performances, I think, were a little too safe and kind of mailed in. I don't think Meryl Streep gets nominated unless her name is Meryl Streep. Uh, Tom Hanks was okay, but kind of miscast. Um, Bob Odenkirk was probably the best one in the, in the group. But I just struggled to get involved in this. I thought it was boring. And I think Steven Spielberg, I think, even thought it was boring because there were scenes where there were just two people talking. And I felt like he was like, okay, this scene is too boring. So I've got to move the camera to make it more interesting. And so there's like one scene at the beginning where Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep are sitting at a table talking and the camera is just doing this rotation around them because apparently the dialogue wasn't wasn't good enough to keep the crowd interested so he had to do something fun with the camera and and he he's almost corny in his direction on this uh there's a scene later on in the movie where Meryl Streep's on the phone as the as the uh, producer of the paper trying to decide whether or not to publish and it's almost like she has you know the devil and the angel on her two shoulders and and Spielberg does these cuts where it's like she looks to one side and then she looks to the other side. I'm like, seriously? You're going to go there? Um, Spielberg hasn't taken a risk in his direction in the movies he's made since, I would say, Munich, which I think is a very good uh, historical drama that he made. But I was really disappointed by this, and I think the Academy showed how disappointed everybody else was with this. Spielberg, it seems like he's going to get rewarded every time he makes a movie with Best Picture. Because, like I said, these four movies, all of them have gotten Best Picture nominations. However, The Post is only the third movie since the uh, Best Picture category has expanded beyond five films. It's only the third movie to get a Best Picture nomination and only be nominated twice. And the other two are A Serious Man and extremely loud and incredibly close. That's not great company to be sharing. And again, if Meryl Streep wasn't Meryl Streep, this would be its only nomination. And I think I was really disappointed by this. I give it one and a half stars, and Spielberg needs to be kicked in the butt and start making good movies again. The other thing with this, I, I feel like there were two movies in 2017 that uh, I didn't like for the same reason. One was The Post, and the other was the HBO documentary about Steven Spielberg's career called Spielberg. And I didn't like that because it was overly sentimental, and it was safe, and it has become Spielberg's career to be this sentimental, safe director. You know exactly what you're going to get every time, and he doesn't make... He doesn't take any risks. Zach, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, um, for starters, uh, I don't know what you mean by risk. I mean, is it what, what was he taking risks when he made 
why was he taking risks when he made Munich? Because the subject matter was more difficult to watch or understand or, like, more violent? I don't know what you mean by the word risk. I think it's more um, the way he tells the story, the way he interprets a story on on screen. Well, I think the the last few films, it's it, they've all been told in this very almost traditional classical way instead of doing something different with it. Like Spotlight was able to take a very similar story about a newspaper investigating something and make it something that was on the edge of your seat the whole time even though all you're hearing is reporters talking. Okay, so your problem is with the screenplay. First of all, Spielberg didn't write the screenplay. Let's be clear on that. So you're talking about his kind of classical... Uh, quote-unquote safe style well Spielberg's always kind of been that director I mean and as you aptly point out that's sort of the the mode that he's been working in the last uh, four pictures that are all historically based um, I'll start with the part that I agree about Spielberg is a ripe sentimentalist and if you go into this movie and you learn one thing from it you learn that but I think we all know that Spielberg is um, wrapped in his sort of sentimentality so I don't know I, I was okay with it um, but I really liked the film, and for a number of reasons. Number one is that it, it it's a challenge making a film about all the moving parts. Okay, you got the Pentagon Papers on the one hand, you got the Vietnam War, you have the Washington Post, and then you have this care this the struggle between the characters Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham, and uh, I think all those moving pieces are actually really difficult to try to manage and tell in a coherent way, co coherent visual way. So I commend the screenplay and I commend the filmmaking for making the story coherent and interesting. Um, I thought particularly the character of Catherine Graham was really intriguing. By the way, Catherine Graham had almost no role. I, actually, I don't think she was a character in All the President's Men, so it's nice to see her character represented on screen finally because she did obviously play a very instrumental role in the development of the Washington Post. Um, I love how the movie kind of showed her at first as this sort of uh, lightweight socialite who rubs shoulders with all the elites in Washington, D.C., and it becomes a personal struggle for her to reconcile her role as a newspaper editor, fighting on behalf and advocating for journalism, while also being someone in the inner kind of social circles in Washington, D.C. I really love, I, I, I love the scene, for example, with her and Robert McNamara, played by Bruce Greenwood, as they kind of talk about what the repercussions of publishing these papers are going to personally mean for him and his life and his family and his relationship with Catherine Graham. The personal is political. I really like that Spielberg illustrated that uh, so well. Um, if you want to criticize the movie, see, I, I thought you were going to criticize the movie on this front. The movie isn't very historically accurate. Um, if you know anything about the Pentagon Papers, you know that they were published in the New, New York Times first, and the movie does kind of show that. So it's kind of curious that the one movie we have about the Pentagon Papers, which is such an important critical uh, event in the course of the journalism freedom in this country, is really kind of told through a distorted lens. However, the reason that Spielberg chose to focus on the post becomes fairly evident because you have these really interesting, pretty gripping characters. And it doesn't so much become about the initial publication of the papers, it becomes about what's going to happen after this, ju th this uh, court order has been summoned to halt the publication of the papers of the Times, so, uh, by the Times. So the post is really going against that court order. 
Um, I disagree with you about the, the cinematic decisions. I like the, the camera rotating around uh, the table. I think that's an interesting conversation. It's early in the film when she's talking about the, the stakeholders uh, of the post, and there's some really good scenes where she's the only woman in the room, and it's clear that she's being spoken over and mansplained to, and that these characters, like the Bradley Whitford character, have a really kind of patronizing attitude toward her and her intelligence. So really the movie's about her cultivating more agency, even though she's in charge of everything, and I think that's fascinating. Um, so, I, I don't know, I, I don't think it's a perfect movie, I think there are flaws in it, I think it, it's a little slow at first, and I don't love the final climactic showdown at the Supreme Court, particularly the kind of corny exchange that Meryl Streep has with the young female clerk, that's kind of corny, but again, that's Spielberg for you. I will say the middle sp uh, passages of this movie are really strong, and did recall the kind of, um, uh, emotional realism and grittiness of Spotlight, particularly the scenes where they're going through the papers and trying to identify what the most important parts are. So uh, I disagree with you, Terry. Uh, I think one and a half is a slap in the face. It's a really, um, it, it, it's an ambitious project. I like that Spielberg is putting it out this year when journalism has come under attack. And of course, the subtext of this movie is Trump. And if you watch the last five minutes of the movie, I think it actually ends on a really interesting and innovative uh, critique of Trump, and I like the way that it ends a lot. So, uh, three stars for me, uh, upper echelon of three stars. Todd, break the tide. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm more on uh, Terry's side on this. I I agree with him that like, Spielberg's kind of lost his way recently. I, I think the movie is incredibly dated, and just like his last few movies. And I also agree that Bob Odenkirk is a standout. He looks like an old newspaper man, and he's able to handle the dialogue-heavy script. I don't think the movie is nearly as smart as it thinks it is. It, I think it's a really contrived and hokey script, and I don't think it sounds as smart as the people talking probably actually were. And I don't think it's all that well-researched, and it doesn't really dive into the process of putting the paper out, which was really sort of disappointing. Like, it should have been called The Papers, because that's what it originally was called, and they call it The Post, and it actually has nothing to really do with the actual process of being at The Post. And I think there are too many random characters, and it's almost, like, distracting with having someone like David Cross and Michael Stuhlbarg having, like, a, a line or two. I mean, the movie could have been a miniseries or something, and, and, like, really made it make a lot more sense. And I think, I mean, Aaron Sorkin would have written a, an amazing and tight script for this movie if he had actually... Uh, wanted to do that. And I don't really like the message the movie's trying to give, either. Like, it wants you to recognize, in, like, the most self-congratulatory way, that these journalists are important, and their bravery is, like, the backbone of the country. And yet, that's not the way it comes off. It was just one lady who had no business running a company who decides to say, screw it, and despite all the other people around her saying that or they were too chicken to, like, go with their convictions, and she just said, screw it, let's do it anyway... And when and then every other paper gives their obligatory like me too like they, they they follow her lead, which when they were too, like they didn't have no spine to do it in the first place. That's a terrible message to give off. Like if one person's gone through with it, then like oh then then everyone can and then no one ever no one's gonna feel left out. No one's gonna want to be the one paper that doesn't actually eventually do the same thing. And, like, the newspapers are not the heroes. It was, it was one woman who got lucky because the justice system actually worked in that in that place. And, uh, I don't know. And, and I also don't like the way Spielberg shot it. Like, they show the president only from behind as if he's, like, the enemy. The same way that in the first scene with the, the war scene, just, like, a straight out of the 1940s, they just show, like, the opposition is in the, is in the shadows. 
and all, you just see bullets like flying out crazy like they're savages or something like like that's the most outdated way to shoot a war scene and they, they do the same thing with the president of the united states at the same time and if it needed another director someone yeah someone who wasn't as sentimental someone who actually could have told the story in an interesting way and um I just want to know who actually voted for this movie at the Academy because it wasn't the SAG like because the, the the SAG ensemble cast like it got completely shut out. The actors didn't like it. The directors nominated a sketch comic and a mumblecore graduate over Steven Spielberg. It wasn't the directors. It wasn't the writers, despite being a journalism movie uh, written by an Oscar winner. And the second highest nominated person ever wasn't nominated for his original score. Yet somehow it's still got 5% of the people to say it's the number one of the year. It makes absolutely no sense to me. But, I don't know. Watching the movie isn't necessarily boring, like Terry said. I think it moves along kind of briskly, and it's it's entertaining to watch the cast. But, I don't know. It's not a good movie. It's not a terrible movie. It's just misguided and a missed opportunity. So, I mean, I give it two stars. And so, Zach, let, let me uh, respond to what you said a little bit. Um, I agree that the most interesting scenes in the movie were the scenes between uh, Meryl Streep's character and Bruce Greenwood's character, Robert McNamara. I thought those were very fascinating because of what you said. It was that mix of personal and political that she had to balance. Um, the main problem I had with it was, you're right, this is a very important story to be telling at this time and how the paper... Um, and how newspapers can uh, hold our political figures accountable, but it wasn't about the story. It was a, more about these people, and where like a film like Spotlight focused on the story, and these characters were able to shine through the telling of the story. I felt like this tried to focus on the people, and the story got lost. And I also think, like you said, it's a good it's a good story to tell at this time because of Meryl Streep's character and how she was overcome so many things. But I almost feel like Spielberg tried to knock you over the head with it and tell you, "Hey, I'm trying to make a point here. This is a this is a female women's rights uh, film here." And it, the the there's a scene near the end of the movie that I just couldn't stand, where she's walking out of the Supreme Court and she walks through away from everybody else and through a crowd of hundreds of women. And I was like, really, you're gonna take this there? That's how you're going to tell us your big message is to have her walk through a a group of hundreds of hippie women. That's that's how you're gonna make your point. I thought it was it was just trying to knock you over the head with it when it was obvious that it was there. You know, Spielberg is like Seth Rogen in <laughs> Knocked Up when he's dancing with Katherine Heigl. All he's got is the dice. That's all he's got. That's his only move. Spielberg's only move is right sentimentalism. So if you don't like the sentimentalism, hey, you stop dancing with him and you say goodbye to him and you don't go home with him. Um, so I would agree with you, Terry. I didn't particularly love that either. I thought it was really corny and tacky and over the top. But I think in the end, um, the, the the message of the movie was more important to me than Spielberg's uh, misguided, over-the-top direction. So I don't know. It's a, it's a judgment call. I don't think we're uh, totally off base here. I agree with a lot of what Todd said, and, and I would echo both of your sentiments that this is a that this is a good, important story that probably needed a different director. Actually, it's the first thing I texted Todd after seeing the movie. Um, it's not like three billboards. We're on we're on different universes here. Uh, I just thought that I, I would agree with Todd. It was bristly paced. I liked the characters. Um, in spite of its flaws, it, it it worked for me. So 
Um, but I, I do hear what you're saying, and it probably needs to be a miniseries or, or a script that's more about the event. Because I, I would agree. I think people walk out of this movie misinformed. They don't really understand the significance of the Pentagon Papers. They think it's just about Catherine Graham suddenly deciding to grow a political conscience. So I, I would agree with that. It's just I like the movie more than you did. See, I get I get disappointed by this because when you look at Spielberg at his best, what his best Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, um, even something like Jurassic Park or Minority Report, that sentimentality is gone, and that's when he's at his best. Yet that is where he's decided to live. And maybe his next venture, I mean, he's got Ready Player One getting ready to come out, which is a trip back to action films, which should be fun, an action adventure. I also heard his next project after that is going to be a revival of West Side Story, which that sentimentality is probably going to work great. But stop making this, these historical dramas and try to, tell these, try to tell these important stories and make them relevant with this safe, sentimental mindset. See, the sentimentality doesn't bother me as much. What, what bothers me actually more so is the, the bleached out digital look of his movies. Uh, visually, this movie looked identical to Bridge of Spies and Lincoln, and it's clear that he's embraced the digital revolution, but all of his movies now look exactly like David Fincher movies, so I wish there was some more grit and um, less polish on them. So I, the sentimentality I don't really care about anymore. That's, that's a problem with the screenplay. I, I wish the movie w looked a little bit more um, alive and less inert. Todd, do you have anything else to add? No, I mean, I, I agree with that about about the look of the movie. I, I thought it kind of looked like an Eastwood movie almost in a way, too. So it, Yeah. Yeah, it, it, need, yeah. Yeah, it, it needed someone who was going to make it look more more plain. Like, I mean, All the President's Men is, the, is like the perfect newspaper movie. And like that, there's, there's nothing special about how the movie looks. It just is all about the movie. Alright, so to recap our review of The Post, I'm giving it one and a half stars, Todd is giving it two stars, and Zach is giving it three stars. I'm just going to point out, I think it is a slap in the face that you give this movie a lower star rating than Downsizing. You're telling me that you would really rather watch Downsizing than this movie? You think Downsizing has more to offer the world than The Post? I enjoyed the first 45 minutes of Downsizing. Okay, I don't well, know if I could say that about the post. <laughs> I actually feel bad. I gave this the same rating as Warhorse. I think Warhorse is probably a worse movie. Bridge of Spies is definitely a worse movie, but none of them are any good. Absolutely. <laughs> See, I didn't mind Bridge of Spies. I li I really liked uh, Lincoln. Warhorse was okay, but of the four, I, this was the first time that all the sentimentality really bothered me this much. But didn't you say that you wanted to see Goodbye Christopher Robin? Like, wasn't that on your top five? most anticipated films? I mean, you're not exactly immune to sentimentality, is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, in a story like that, sentimentality is expected. Okay, Mr. Finding Neverland. <laughs> Finding Neverland's a great movie. It's very sentimental, and it's because it's telling the story of Peter Pan. Well, if You don't Spielberg want to tell direct... Peter Pan the way you tell a story about government corruption. All right, well, let's move on. I'm done talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we did our, our rating of a, of a recent movie. Now, as we're about to enter the month of February, we're going to look back and give a milestone review of uh, a few films that are celebrating anniversaries in the month of February. Uh, Zach, why don't you start us out with this one? Okay, so uh, I'm going back to the wonderful year of 1998 for my uh, milestone pick, and that is 
Kurt and Courtney, the wonderful documentary made by the pioneering uh, film, uh, filmmaker Nick Broomfield. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Nick Broomfield's style, it's very distinct, okay? He almost comes out of this sort of hard copy, Rupert Murdoch, celebrity-obsessed tradition of cinema verite, where he shoves a camera in someone's face and shoves a microphone next to their mouth and uh, abruptly comes at people. So, and, and he loves to make documentaries about celebrities. So, this is a movie about uh, Kurt Cobain, more specifically, Kurt Cobain's death. And the thesis that he has, that he opens up the movie with, is that he believes that Kurt Courtney, uh, Courtney Love uh, had a hand to play in Kurt's murder. It wasn't a suicide, it was a murder. So already we're thinking, okay, well this guy's a little bit, you know, out on the limb. And uh, right away in the movie, too, he says that uh, he doesn't have enough money to finance the rights to the royalties for Nirvana songs. So it's like, wow, okay, all right, we're, well, let's see what happens here. And that's sort of, the, uh, you know, t typical Nick Broomfield kind of stuff. Um, the movie's really fascinating and gripping. Originally, I saw it because as, an, as a Nirvana fan, I try to see whatever comes out about Kurt, and I know Todd can echo those sentiments. And this is one of the very best films uh, to come out about Nirvana uh, because it, uh, it, it addresses Kurt's relationship with Courtney and also what a bitch Courtney is. Um, even if she didn't have anything to do with Kurt's death, she comes off very poorly in this film. And it's also, I think, a, a subtle statement about the celebrity that Kurt Cobain achieved, the persona, the, the personality cult. Um, and Broomfield does a really good job of mixing footage of Kurt, Kurt Cobain and then the, the, the kind of on-the-ground um, stuff that he does to try to get interviews with these elite people. And he goes through these really backward channels, and so he talks to people that may have a really, may have known Courtney Love at one point, may have known Kurt at one point. Most memorably, he interviews uh, a guy who uh, says he was the personal assassin of Kurt Cobain, and his name is El Duce. So um, this is a fun film about a not-so-fun subject matter, but it also says a lot about the ethics of documentary filmmaking, like a lot of Nick Broomfield's films do. And... Uh, if you're a Kurt Cobain fan, this is an absolute must-see. So we're celebrating the 20-year anniversary, the muckraking, groundbreaking documentary, Kurt and Courtney. See it if you dare. I still need to see that one. It is a great movie. I I, I slightly prefer uh, Montage of Heck, but uh, Kurt and Courtney is a is a masterpiece documentary for sure. I, I love that movie. Yeah, and, and we've had a slew of documentaries about Kurt Cobain released the last few years. This this has its place with with them. So, you know, everyone should check it out. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, so I'm looking back at 2008, uh, and it's the 10-year anniversary of George A. Romero's Diary of the Dead. Uh, I think it's the best movie that Romero ever made. Uh, it's his most under control, his most narratively interesting, and his most intense. It's it's a found footage movie, so uh, which I think it probably is the second best found footage movie I've ever seen behind a, a record. Uh, it takes place during the initial outbreak uh, so basically parallel time to Night of the Living Dead. It follows a group of film students at the University of Pittsburgh who are making a horror movie at the time of the outbreak, and they hear about some uh, mass killings and riots, and so they decide to keep their cameras on and record what's going on. Uh, and they're traveling to the narrator's uh, narrator Deborah's home uh, because they can't get in contact with her parents, so they, they want to go see if they're okay. And so it is a road movie, and there's a lot of interesting set pieces, and uh, there's some really claustrophobic scenes in a in a ho in a hospital that uh, 
that'll definitely stick with you. There's a fair amount of gore, but it's like low budget horror, so the zombies look a lot more lifelike, and uh, the found footage makes it seem a lot more intense and real. Uh, everything looks as if it could have actually happened because we're we're watching it through the lens of one of the characters, and uh, in typical Romero fashion, it's highly political at the same time. He did have a follow up. That was even more so Survival of the Dead, which was uh, slightly disappointing, but uh, this one is uh, this this one's a lot a lot better. And the Survival of the Dead was actually his last movie ever made, but this one is takes place right before that. Uh, he's one of the masters of horror, and this is his least indulgent and most brilliant movie. And I don't know anyone other than maybe our buddy Adam of the Red and Brown podcast who uh, loves a movie as much as I do and considers it a masterpiece, but. It is. It's my number 10 of 2008. Uh, Diary of the Dead is my milestone movie for February. I haven't seen that one yet either. Me neither. Bummer. Alright, so my uh, milestone movie for February is going back to 1993 and celebrating the 25th anniversary of Groundhog Day. Going back to 1993 and celebrating the 25th anniversary of Groundhog... Oh, say, wait, I already said I that. I see what you did there. Um, Groundhog Day... Ah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Groundhog Day is the uh, story of, um, of Phil, played by Bill Murray, as he relives the same day over and over again while he's stuck in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, covering the, um, the release of the Groundhog on Groundhog Day. Uh, it is possibly, with everything that Bill Murray did in the 80s, Groundhog Day might be Bill Murray's most iconic role. Uh, it, it is so ingrained into our culture and our society. I can't hear Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe, without thinking of Groundhog Day. Um, it's got so many wonderful characters that... Um, that you constantly uh, think about and go back to. Ned... Ryerson! Uh, it's it's such a fun film. Uh, if there's anyone out there who actually hasn't seen it, what's wrong with you? Go see Groundhog Day. It is an amazing film and 25 years old. I think I'm more impressed with the fact that 1993 was 25 years ago. You know, I, I feel like that film is in the same category as the Shawshank Redemption films that came out and people liked them when they came out. But then over the years, they've developed this cult following, and now everyone loves it. And there are films like The Wizard of Oz and uh, It's a Wonderful Life that, if you haven't seen, as you pointed out, Terry, there's something really wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. Such a great movie. Agreed. All right, so to recap here, uh, we have the 10th anniversary of Diary of the Dead, the 15, right, 15, of Kurt and 20. Courtney? 20. 20-year anniversary of Kurt and Courtney, and the 25-year anniversary of Groundhog Day. All right, before we finish talking about the upcoming month of February, we're also going to look at some of our more anticipated films that are about to come out. Now, we didn't do this for the month of January because, honestly, nothing really good comes out in January that didn't get our limited release in December. But we're going to look at February and look at what our most anticipated films of this next month are going to be. Todd, start us off. Okay, uh, I still think February kind of sucks, so uh, out of protest, I'm choosing something that's probably going to be terrible, but for reasons that I will explain is my number one anticipated movie, and that's The War with Grandpa. 
Uh, this movie is about a child who is upset with that he has to share his room with his grandfather, so he declares war on him. So it sounds sort of like Home Alone or something like that. It's probably going to be terrible, but is the first time that my all-time favorite actor and actress are in the same movie in 25 years. So De Niro and Uma Thurman, the last time they were in a movie together was Mad Dog and Glory, which was a decent movie in 1993. And it's also the second time since 1978 that the stars of my number one movie of all time, The Deer Hunter, are in the movie together. De Niro and Walken are in this movie. Uh, they were also in a movie called Mistress in 1992, which I've never heard of. So on those ideas alone, I think it's worth mentioning, and it's based on a book, so it's not going to be as bad as Bad Grandpa, at least I wouldn't hope so, and uh, it's the writers of Get Smart, so it's possible that it could be interesting. So, they had to get the cast somehow. The War with Grandpa is my movie I have my eye on in February. February 23rd. So the first 20 seconds of Todd talking about the war with Grandpa, I was utterly befuddled and confused. Like, is he doing this out of protest or something? And then I looked it up on IMDb and I saw Robert De Niro and Uma Thurman and I thought, yep, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> yes, yes. Alright, so for me, my most anticipated film of the month of February is probably going to be the most anticipated film for a lot of people, and that is Black Panther the uh, latest Marvel Cinematic Universe film to come out. Um, I am with those out there that are saying we're starting to get a little tired of some of these movies. However, this movie has me very intrigued because it is written and directed by Ryan Coogler, who uh, has done Fruitvale Station. He's also the one behind Creed, the, uh, the resurrection of the uh, Rocky Balboa universe. Uh, it's starring Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, who has also been the star of all of Ryan Coogler's films up to this point, Lupita Nyong'o. This has the potential to be a very interesting film and a Marvel film that really steps out. The last one before this was Thor Ragnarok, which did a lot of the same thing. It stepped out and was something different, and I think Black Panther will be the same. So, my most anticipated is Black Panther. February Good 16th. Choice. Good choice, Terry. Uh, my number one film for February, well, I want to go back for a second. I think February is a wonderful time for movies. You know, football is ending. We're not really that excited about basketball quite yet. So it's a great time, especially for foreign language films, getting their first uh, American releases. And uh, this is one of them. The film is called A Fantastic Woman, and it was the official uh, Academy Award nominee for foreign language film by Chile, and it received a nomination, so it is nominated for an Oscar this year. Um, and it uh, tells the story of a uh, trans woman who works as a nightclub singer, and she has a relationship with an older man, and upon the older man's death, uh, she kind of experiences discrimination and hostility at the hands of his extended family. Um, I don't know too much about the film. This is a very IMDb plot synopsis, but uh, I saw the preview for it. It looks fantastic. Uh, I did see Todd's article where he said that Daniela Vega was a very Tommy Lee Jones and In the Valley of Ela long shot nominee for Best Actress, which would have been awesome to see. Um, I've wanted to see this film for a while. It looks really interesting, and it's really nice to see uh, visibility for trans and non-binary characters. And the fact that it's non-American means that it'll probably be more heartfelt and realistic. So A Fantastic Woman is the film I'm most looking forward to seeing in the month of February. Sounds like we got three, uh, three good choices out there. I want to just throw out, no, none of us mentioned, at least two. 
<laughs> I just want to throw out there, none of us did mention um, Annihilation, which was my second most anticipated. Annihilation, written and directed by Alex Garland, who did Ex Machina. If you haven't seen Ex Machina, see it. This is his follow-up. Natalie Portman, Oscar Isaac, Jennifer Jason Lee. It looks very interesting as well. Okay. Agreed. That one actually does look really good. So, But it I, does. I, I kind of am discouraged by the fact that it was delayed as long as it was. It was supposed to come out last year. All right, moving on. Uh, it is now time for our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. I had the honor of selecting our uh, topic for this uh, for this podcast. Uh, as I aced, I didn't only win, I aced Adam's list from our last podcast, well, two podcasts ago. So our category for Power Rankings is Greatest Oscar Snubs of the 21st Century. Now, we're only talking acting categories here, but Greatest Oscar Snubs of the 21st Century. And before we even get into our list, there is one name we all decided to leave off our list because it was going to be on all of our lists. And Todd, I'm going to give you the opportunity to talk about him first. Uh, who is like the greatest Oscar snub of the 21st century? Uh, that would be Paul Giamatti in a movie called Sideways. If you haven't heard of uh, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, leading up to the Oscars, he was nominated for the Golden Globes, the SAGs, the Critics' Choice, all the other critic awards. He won the Spirit Award. Uh, it's never going to make any sense how he didn't get nominated, because his movie was nominated basically everywhere else that it could have been at the Oscars, and it's, and even more so the fact that in 2003, he probably had the most egregious snub also for American Splendor. Uh, there's almost nobody that could have played that part, except maybe Philip Seymour Hoffman or Steve Buscemi, and... He, I don't know, the fact that old Clint Eastwood was nominated for playing old Clint Eastwood over Paul is a ridiculous, just absolutely <laughs> tragedy. And uh, to the fact that they gave him a, a, like a terrible nomination the next year for Cinderella Man. Like, Paul Giamatti in Sideways is the definition of an Oscar snub. Alright, uh, so Paul Giamatti would be at the top of all of our lists, but we left him off so we because this was a very hard list to make. I know for me, when I just went through and did some basic research, I came up easily with like 30 names that could have been on this list, and we had to narrow it down to five. So, let's get started with this. Um, I will start, uh, we'll go five to one, and then we'll do honorable mentions at the end. Uh, my number five uh, snub is Kate Winslet, in kind of a dual snub. For Revolutionary Road and The Reader. Now, if you remember, in 2008, she won Best Actress for The Reader. However, in all the precursors leading up to, and leading up to the Oscars, she was being nominated and winning Best Actress for Revolutionary Road and Best Supporting Actress for The Reader. And I was really looking forward to this moment where she was going to be the first person ever to win two acting Oscars in one year because it was all pointing to that. And then the Oscars chose to put her performance for the reader in lead 
which made it impossible for it to happen, and probably it was a lead performance. However, who cares? It was getting nominated everywhere else in supporting, and it robbed us of that moment to see her win two Oscars in the same ceremony. Uh, so my number five snub, Kate Winslet, 2008, for Revolutionary Road and The Reader. All right. I didn't have as much of a problem with that. I didn't think either of those were her greatest performances, and I guess I'm happy she ultimately won, so... For me, it was more, I just wanted to see that happen. But there's no guarantee it would have happened. I mean, Penelope Cruz was pretty formidable in Vicky Cristina Barcelona, so... Yeah, but she wasn't winning anything until Kate Winslet was out of the picture. Meryl Streep won the SAG, though, that year. So it's possible she could have won for Doubt. She tied the SAG. Yeah, Todd, get it right. And that was a critic's choice. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. She tied two straight critics' choice because she tied the next year with uh, Sandra Bullock. Okay, so like Terry, I had a really hard time with this because there were just so many names uh, you could come up with. I did make a slight rule for myself. I don't know if either... Well, Terry clearly didn't follow this rule. I limited it to actors that... Uh, did not and have not since won Oscars, because the Academy Award is so much about a career achievement award. So um, all five of mine are people who have not won acting awards, meaning that sadly Nicolas Cage does not make my list, nor does Leonardo DiCaprio, but we'll get to honorary mentions later. Number five on my list is, from this year, a huge snub in the supporting actress category, and that nominee is Bria Veneti from The Florida Project. She plays Haley, the mother of Mooney, the main uh, child in the, the Florida Project. And this woman just exudes uh, charisma and um, dynamism. And you watch her on screen, and she's stunning. Um, she doesn't have a lot of a screenplay to work with, which also kind of went into my thinking process. If someone's just reading great dialogue, I think that's less of a significant performance than someone who has very little dialogue to go off of. And this woman had to improvise a lot of her material. And uh, she's astonishing the movie. I think it's clearly the best performance in any movie I saw in 2017, and it is a tragedy that she didn't get nominated for Supporting Actress. I know it's a pretty loaded category this year, but uh, the Florida Project was screwed, and in particular, Bria Veneti deserved more attention. All right. Todd, number five. Okay, so the rules that I made up for this were um, I was only going with my personal winner in each category, which shrunk the pool to 72. And the ones of those that did not get nominated was were 45. So I had a smaller pool to go from, but that makes it sort of a more elite choice. And I went one per category and then my number one. And so nominations matter only to an extent, It's but they're movies that had a chance of getting nominated, but uh, so they're not obscure foreign or indie movies that would have had no shot at the Oscars. With that being said, my number five is Michael B. Jordan in Fruitvale Station who, leading up to the awards, had won several Critic Awards and uh, the Spirit Award. It is one of the most natural pieces of acting that I've seen in a long time. I would put it on on a par with Mickey Rourke and The Wrestler as like a blend of, or like a movie where the actor is the perfect, uh, is absolutely perfect for that role, and it, he's just a natural performer. And... Uh, I, uh, I can't really say why it wasn't a big bigger Oscar movie. It was like a huge hit at Sundance, and uh, it was really timely, and it was really good and really dark. Um, he played Oscar Grant, who was uh, an African-American who was gunned down by the police in, on New Year's in 2008. Uh, he's, it's a, he's a marvel to watch, and 
He rips at our emotions, but he's also really human. He isn't necessarily likable, but we see the world through his eyes, and he is astonishing. And I would have definitely put him in the best actor category over Denzel Washington in Flight. All right. Hard to, ar- hard to argue with that one, Todd. It's a great call. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. It just missed my list. Um, since you guys are talking about what qualified your list, um, what I was looking at for my list were those uh, those people that you were expecting to be nominated that may have been favorites uh, that ended up being left off the list. So that's what I was looking at for mine. So that is why number four on my list of Oscar snubs of the 21st century is Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained. Uh, leading up to the uh, Oscars that year, it seemed like a shoe-in that Leonardo DiCaprio was going to be nominated for basically playing his least Leo performance. Uh, uh, leading up to this, he'd kind of been doing these movies that were um, begging him to be getting an Oscar, and then he did Django Unchained, where he really just kind of said, I don't care. And he had the most fun he's ever had being in this Tarantino film. And it looked like it not only was going to give him a nomination, but potentially a win. Yet he was snubbed for his co-star, Christoph Waltz, who ended up winning. Who I love that performance, but there's no way he should have won or even been nominated over Leonardo DiCaprio. He was incredible as Calvin Candy and should have been nominated. Leonardo DiCaprio, my number four. The one major problem with that is that Christoph Waltz, I always felt like, was the main character in that movie. I think he should have been nominated for Best Actor and not Best Supporting Actor. That's a valid point, too. All right, number four on my list is, uh, kind of brings up what, something that, Terry, you sort of addressed, which is, you know, are we awarding nominations in films that got nominations or critical recognition from the Academy but just missed out on some acting category for some reason? Um, I kind of went back and forth with that debate on, on my list. Ultimately, I kind of decided to go with the performance, even if the film didn't get a lot of Oscar attention. So my number four pick is Katie Jarvis in Fish Tank from 2009. Now, this might be a film that you'd think wouldn't get any real Oscar recognition. It was uh, a low-budget British film that really didn't get any kind of nominations or any kind of Oscar buzz. However, it did win several noted international awards like the Cannes uh, Film Festival and the British Independent uh, Awards. Um, but this is a movie about a 15-year-old girl named Mia, who's played by Katie Jarvis in her first role, and she comes from a really messed up uh, life. She lives in kind of a squalor in this flat with her mom and her sister, and her mom brings home her uh, this new boyfriend, played by Michael Fassbender, and uh, their relationship is very complex, and there is a lot of uh, dark undertones to it. Uh, her performance is a revelation. I mean... It's great naturalistic acting, it's gritty realism. And the reason I would put it on my list of serious snubs is if you look at the Best Actress race in 2009, where the winner was Sandra Bullock for The Blind Side, my guess is that if Katie Jarvis had somehow made that cut of the top five performances, she would have gotten some serious votes and consideration. So I think it's a major snub, and anyone who's seen Fish Tank can uh, commend her role and you know, recognize its, its brilliance. That is a great choice. I have her ranked my number three of that year for Best Actress. Uh, And my number four is also another uh, Michael Fassbender co-star, and that is Carrie Mulligan in Shame. So she had won, or she had been nominated for uh, Critic Awards, including the Critics' Choice, and she was also nominated at the BAFTAs for another movie, which was Drive. So she was in two of the best movies of that year. And in this, she is as far away from her cutesy... Uh, type 
unimaginable. Uh, she disappears into the role, and she steals ne- nearly every scene from Fassbender. She plays the sister of uh, the sex-addicted main character, and she's furious and unflattering and intoxicating to watch. She still she has a scene where she sings New York, New York, which I think was one of the best scenes in all of 2011. And it's impossible to watch the movie and not be struck by her performance. And if it was easier subject matter, or if it wasn't NC-17, I suppose, then she probably would have been on everyone's list for a supporting actress. And the fact that someone like Melissa McCarthy gets nominated over her is just, it's a joke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although it really would have been awesome to see Melissa McCarthy sing New York, New York in Bridesmaids. True. I might have made it better than uh, one of the worst movies of the year. <laughs> Can't argue with that. All right, moving on. My number three uh, goes back to the year 2006. And one of the uh, bigger surprises on nomination morning was when Jack Nicholson was not nominated for Best Supporting Actor in The Departed. Uh, It was possibly his best performance of this century so far. Um, And especially now that it was, you look back and see it was one of his last performances as he's not really acting much anymore. Uh, It was really sad to see him be left off this list. And possibly more surprising was the fact that he was snubbed for his co-star, Mark Wahlberg, who did have a scene-stealing performance. However, Jack Nicholson was just absolutely outstanding and helped make that movie as gritty as it was. If he had been nominated, he may have been one of the favorites to win, and instead you had this crazy thing happen where Eddie Murphy was supposed to win and Alan Arkin upset him. Um, but it all would have been just fine if Jack Nicholson had been nominated and he won instead. Uh, but he definitely deserved to be in there. My number three, Jack Nicholson for The Departed. Yeah, they really botched that category. Like I, I always thought Brad Pitt and Babel and uh, Ben Affleck in Hollywoodland should have definitely been nominated too. They, they completely just screwed that up. I think the Golden Globes actually had the right idea that year. Well, wasn't the story of that Oscars that Warner Brothers produced both The Departed and Blood Diamond, and they went with Blood Diamond for the film that they were going to market to voters? Well, then they put like Leo in supporting for The Departed. But see, it even still got a nomination in supporting actor. It just was the wrong nomination. <laughs> Yeah, 06 was just a stranger all around, but it did give us one of the great Oscar moments of the of all time when Mar- Marty finally won. Yes. True. Okay, I'm going to, to uh, for my number three film, I'm going to the 2013 Academy Awards um, in the Best Actor category, where a major snub was Oscar Isaac for Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, this guy commands every scene in this movie. I think he's in every scene in Inside Lewin Davis. And, you know, the role requires both musical talent, um, someone who's extremely emotionally uh, sensitive and sympathetic, um, and someone who's also funny. He has to play alongside a cat, you know? Uh, How difficult is that? So uh, he does it masterfully. It's one of the great roles in all the Cohen uh, canon, and uh, Oscar Isaac's one of the most talented actors of our era, so uh, it's dumbfounding that he missed out on a nomination that year, in a, in a category that admittedly was pretty strong. You know, you had Matthew McConaughey, Bruce Dern, Leo, Chiwetelogy of Four, but it would have been nice to see uh, recognition for Os- Oscar Isaac. Especially with choice. that being like a, like a character study from the Coens as well. I thought that that was definitely uh, something that should have been on the list. I, 
I didn't have that performance of his make my shortlist. However, him and Jessica Chastain from A Most Violent Year were on my shortlist. Okay. Uh, I consider Oscar Isaac now that Sam Rockwell is nominated uh, the second best actor in the world to not have a nomination. And my number three is my number one best actor in the world without a nomination. That's Steve Buscemi for Ghost World. Um, he was nominated for the Golden Globe. He won the Spirit Award and the National Society of Film Critics. And it is it's his best performance, and I don't understand why he didn't get nominated. It was nominated for screenplay that year. Um, he plays a loner who collects records and ends up befriending a couple of young girls who met him simply as joke entertainment. He, um, you can always see the pain on his face, and nobody plays, uh, you know, kind of funny looking, kind of like he can. Um, he's always super uncomfortable, and in the in that movie, and it's uh, other than Messenger, which is only like a couple minute performance, this is definitely the best that he can do, and uh, his line delivery is on point, and he's. His character is super relatable and an incredibly high war. And the Academy nominated John Voight and Ali over him, which is just one <laughs> of the ones that should not have been, uh, should never have been uh, put above Buscemi. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that film also. I was actually thinking about Thora Birch uh, not getting nominated for Best Actress for that film. I feel like if it gets released in 2018, maybe the Academy is a little more accepting of it. It was maybe a little too low budget, too indie for most Oscar voters in 2001, but it is a great performance, a great movie, and uh, John Voight is a slap in the face. All right, moving on. My number two, going to 2015. Uh, best Supporting Actor. Leading up to the Oscar nominations, there was one man who seemed to be the favorite to win. However... As Todd mentioned earlier when we were talking about this year's Oscar nominations, the Oscars have a problem with Netflix films, and that is what doomed Idris Elba in Beasts of No Nation. Uh, he was absolutely outstanding in this movie. He carried the movie and was one of the best performances of that year. Um, and this uh, snub got a lot of recognition uh, because it kind of perpetuated the hashtag Oscars so white movement that was going on at the time. However, I think this this snub was had a lot less to do with that and a lot more to do with the fact that it was a Netflix film and the Oscars were not willing yet to honor a Netflix film in that way. Obviously, they're starting to change their mind with how they've treated Mudbound this year. Um, in my predictions for this year, I actually had Mary J. Blige getting snubbed because I didn't know if now would be the time they would honor a Netflix film, but they have. But... Idris Elba probably would have won if he had been nominated for Best Supporting Actor in 2015, but he didn't even get a chance. That puts him my number two on Greatest Oscar Snubs. Yeah, and, and the fact that you know he's such a renowned actor and ever and, and this is he's had such an incredible body of work the last few years really just uh, backs up a lot of what you say. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. Two, I mean, he oh, yeah. he won two SAG awards that year too, so it's like obviously the actors. I, like, loved him. I, I, it's kind of hard to believe that he actually didn't get nominated because that's who votes on the actors getting nominated. So, All right, well, I'll, I'll give my number two uh, snub, and that is from the Best Actress category in 2004, which was won by a deserving recipient in Hilary Swank and Million Dollar Baby, but the person that was missing from this category was uh, none other than uh, Todd's muse, Quentin Tarantino's muse, the one and only Uma Thurman for Kill Bill Volume 2. Um, 
you know, Kill Bill Volume 2 was released, I think, in April of 2004, so I guess it makes a little sense that it got so ignored by the Academy voters. Um, but this is one of the great performances of this millennium, uh, and I can't really imagine any other actress going through the physical rigor that uh, Thurman goes through over the course of the film, the fact that we sympathize with her, we love her, she has to go through this traumatic, uh, these traumatic events and hurdles and obstacles, and it's probably the best performance in any Tarantino film, so it's uh, shameful that she didn't get nominated. Agreed. Yeah, the, that... Somehow did not make my list, but uh, wow. that was one of the ones I was considering. Me too. Uh, my number two is uh, uh, from 2011. It's one of uh, movies Zach's going to love to hear, and that's Anna Paquin and Margaret. Uh, she she was the winner of a handful of critic awards, including the London Film Critics. Um, it is a almost impossible to duplicate this performance, I feel like. Uh, it's a role that has a crazy range of emotions, and... Um, uh, she was believable in every aspect uh, she plays a spoiled teen in New York who witnesses a bus, bus accident and feels guilt over how it happened if Kenneth Lonergan's movie was uh, a little bit more, better handle, it wasn't, didn't go through post-production hell, then I would have to think that she would be nominated for Best Actress because she was just on another level and I'll never forget what the movie did to me and it, and it all revolved around her character and uh, uh, they nominated Glenn Close and Albert Nobbs, which is uh, ridiculous in its own right, but the fact that it's over Anna Paquin is even worse. Yeah, I mean, even though I didn't like the film, I, I agree with what you said. She was amazing in the film, um, and she carried that role, and she carried the movie for all five hours of it. Three. Three, <laughs> sorry. All right, moving on to number one. My number one Oscar snub of the 21st century is from 2013. And I still am baffled by the fact that Tom Hanks in Captain Phillips did not make the best actor category in uh, in this. Uh, and instead, Christian Bale for American Hustle hopped in instead because they felt the need to continue to honor David O. Russell films and make it back-to-back -back years that his films got nominated in all four acting categories. But Tom Hanks in Captain Phillips was absolutely outstanding. Um, as you feel uh, what he's going through throughout this entire movie, there's a scene near the end where he's finally rescued and he's just in shock and trying to cope with what just happened. And it is some of the best acting I've seen over the last 10 years. And yet he wasn't even honored with a nomination for that. He hasn't been nominated since Castaway in 2000. And he hasn't made a whole lot of great films, but when he does make great films, they refuse to recognize him. It makes me so mad. Tom Hanks, Captain Phillips, my number one. He's had like a bunch of Golden Globe nominations since then, too. It's kind of ridiculous that he hasn't transferred any of them over to an Oscar. Oh, you could go through the list. I mean, you got Catch Me If You Can, Road to Perdition, Charlie Wilson's War, even The Post. He, they refuse to nominate him. He's terrible in Bridge of Spies, though. <laughs> Well, it's interesting that, that we've now talked about the Best Actor 2013 category twice because along with Oscar Isaac, um, it's pretty clear that this category was, was fairly loaded. I actually thought Christian Bale was pretty good in American Hustle. Certainly not as good as either of the two actors we've mentioned, but it, it, it was a tough uh, race that year. We could also even um, put in there uh, Joaquin Phoenix for her. He didn't get a nomination either. That's a great one, too. Yeah. 
Well, and uh, Fruitville Station was out here too. That was there the, you go. Oh, that yeah. was the one, Forgot. the main one. Yeah. The thing Amazing. with Tom Hanks though is he was getting every single um, precursor leading up to the Oscar nominations, and like it, it was, you were thinking it was McConaughey. It was Ejiofor, and then Hanks was like in third in the race, and then he didn't even get nominated. That is pretty shocking. All right, well, moving on to my number one uh, Oscar snub of the century so far, we have to go all the way back to 2000, where Julia Roberts won for Aaron Brockovich, which raised a lot of eyebrows, because Ellen Burstyn was great in Requiem for a Dream, so was Laura Linney, neither of them, I would have had no issue with either of them winning, but missing from that category that year was... Probably the best performance of the millennium, uh, or at least you can make that argument, and that is none other than Bjork in Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark. Uh, anyone who's seen this film uh, can just recognize that this is a role that is virtually impossible for any other actress to play other than Bjork, because it requires the, this kind of musical talent that, and, and a the really distinct voice and pattern of speaking that only Bjork has. In the movie, she plays a Czech immigrant who's working in Washington State in this factory in 1964, and she has, and she's going blind, and she's having these dreams of, she has these dreams of being a great actress uh, and performing in the local production of The Sound of Music. And then as the film goes along, she's convicted of this crime that she didn't commit, and she's, it, it's clearly outside the realm of her mental and emotional knowledge and awareness. Um, her performance is captivating and heartbreaking, and uh, I can't imagine anyone having seen this movie saying that she wasn't, she didn't at least deserve a nomination alongside the ranks of, say, Julia Binoche in Chocolat or Joan Allen in The Contender. It may not have been a popular film with Oscar voters, but uh, it's a performance that you will never forget after having seen, and it does remain the only film that Bjork has ever acted in. Wow. I need to see that. Todd, you agree with me, Yeah, right? it's a good movie. I actually don't nominate her for Best Actress. I think she was probably six or seven on my list, but I don't actually give her... But it is a great performance, for sure. And yeah, one that could never be duplicated. But my number one is a performance that I think might be the best performance since 2000, and that is Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive. Uh, she won the National Society of Film Critics and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, it, she, it was her first starring role in the U.S., which is probably the reason why it wasn't, uh, she didn't get nominated. I, I can't imagine any other reason. Uh, her movie was even nominated for Best Director. Uh, she plays Betty, who's an aspiring actress who stumbles upon an, an, an amnesiac, and but it did, really doesn't matter what the plot is because it's so disjointed, it isn't even worth explaining. But the movie is an all-timer, and Watts is able to display every emotion that she's ever that she would ever need to. She's con very convincing at playing a bad actress, which is also evident in Ellie Parker in 2005. But it's her, she has a way of portraying sexiness and vulnerability, and her character completely changes, and she's terrifying near the end of it. Um, she does scenes that are invasive and daring. It's the best that she ever has been, or ever will be. And we got a nomination like Renee Zellweger in Bridget Jones' Diary instead of that, which is... Which I, I will never understand. Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive is maybe the best performance since 2000, and she was not nominated somehow. In a film that got a lot of Oscar attention. It was only nominated for one Oscar, actually. Oh. Which is kind of ridiculous, too. Which was director, right? Director. Yeah. Well, either yeah, way, it was, I, a, it was a, at least a film that was in the debate for the Oscars uh, leading up to the ceremony that year, and the nominations. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'd have to agree with you too, Todd. That that definitely deserves to be considered on these lists. And thank you for saving us the hour it was going to take you to explain Mulholland Drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I stopped about uh, ten minutes into the movie, and I was like, okay. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's review our top five, and then we'll look at honorable mentions, and then we'll uh, see if we can guess Adam's list. So... Uh, my number five, Kate Winslet for Revolutionary Road and the Reader. Number four, Leonardo DiCaprio, Django Unchained. Number three, Jack Nicholson and The Departed. Number two, Idris Elba and Beasts of No Nation. And number one, Tom Hanks and Captain Phillips. My number five is Bria Veneti for The Florida Project. Number four is Katie Jarvis for Fish Tank. Number three is Oscar Isaac for Inside Lewin Davis. Number two is Uma Thurman for Kill Bill Volume 2, and you should both be ashamed of yourself for not including that on your list. <laughs> and number one, the greatest snub since 2000, is Bjork for Dancer in the Dark. Well, in my defense, uh, Uma is not my Best Actress winner for 2004, so that was the reason why she's not on my list. Uh, Who wins? Uh, Marion Cotillard for Love Me If You Dare. <laughs> anyway. Okay. My number, <laughs> she's she's great, and I haven't seen it. Uh, number five, Michael B. Jordan in Fruitvale Station. Number four, Carrie Mulligan in Shame. Number three, Steve Buscemi in Ghost World. Number two, Anna Paquin in Margaret. And number one, Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive. All right, so let's go through some honorable mentions here really quick. Uh, I've got five I'm going to run through really quick, and only one of them has been said so far, which I think is impressive. So uh, my five honorable mentions, uh, David Oyelowo for Selma, uh, Michael B. Jordan for Fruitvale Station, uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson for Nocturnal Animals, kind of falling into the same category as some of the others where the co-star got nominated, uh, Paul Dano for There Will Be Blood, and Andrew Garfield for The Social Network. My honorable mentions, I'm actually going to put... I originally had this actor in my top five, but I did cross him out. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. Stunning that he didn't mm. get a nomination for that. Yes. Adepario Oduye for Pariah. Sally Hawkins for Happy Go Lucky. Lily Gladstone for Certain Women. And Jack Black for School of Rock or Bernie. Take your pick. Or even High Fidelity. He needed an Oscar nomination this millennium. All right, uh, my nominations, one per category. I got Nicolas Cage in Matchstick Men, Sally Hawkins in Happy-Go-Lucky, Ray Liotta in Narc, and Maria Jose Crows for The Barbarian Invasions. Okay. Which could have also been Christina Ricci in Monster, but they're, like, tied for my sporting actress win in 2003. Yeah, I was surprised that one didn't get mentioned, actually. Yeah, me too. Okay, so now let's look at Adam's list. So... Uh, for those who may not have listened before, Adam Daly is a buddy of ours that is one-fourth of Almost Sideways. Uh, he um, works mainly on the YouTube end. Uh, he runs uh, the Almost Sideways YouTube channel and also has the Red and Brown podcast. Uh, so every time we do our power rankings, we decide we're going to try and guess what his list is for this uh uh, top five that we have for the power ranking we're doing that week and the winner gets to choose our next topic so I will start out by giving my top five here 
and then uh, then we'll see what everybody else has to say, and then we'll uh, see how well we did. So my top five for Adam, I'm gonna go number five, Ryan Gosling in Drive. Number four, Miles Teller in Whiplash. Number three, Jack Nicholson for The Departed. Number two, Leonardo DiCaprio for The Departed. And number one, Andy Serkis for Lord of the Rings, Planet of the Apes, or King Kong. Take your pick. One of his motion capture moments he should have been nominated for, I'm going to say Adam is going to say. Okay, uh, my guess for Adam, number five, Scarlett Johansson for her. Number four, Paul Dano and There Will Be Blood. Number three, Christian Bale for The Dark Knight. Number two, Colin Farrell for In Bruges. And number one, Jack Nicholson for The Departed. Okay, my uh, number five, I have Andy Serkis for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Number four, Sean Astin for The Lord of the Rings The Return of the King. Number three, Amy Adams in Arrival. Number two, Nicolas Cage in Matchstick Men. And number one, Leonardo DiCaprio for The Departed. Okay, so I have Adam's list here. So let me tell you what we got. Uh, how should we treat movies where we got the right actor but the wrong performance? Because it's count. going to what, apply. So is it Django on there? <laughs> no. Half a point? Full point? Zero points. He didn't get it. Okay, but well, Terry it mentioned like 11 movies. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> okay, so Adam's honorable mention. Uh, he did have uh, Paul Giamatti for Sideways, which we mentioned we weren't uh, we weren't putting on our list. Uh, David Oyelowo for Selma, Jason Mitchell for Straight Outta Compton, and Mila Kunis for Black Swan. There's his honorable mentions. So his top five: number five, Scarlett Johansson for Lost in Translation. Ah. See, you you said it doesn't count. It affected you. No, it's okay. I don't. I didn't get it. I shouldn't get a point for that. Number four, Paul Dano. There will be blood. Nice. Or anything he puts in parentheses. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Number three, Joaquin Phoenix for her. Uh, Number two, Ryan Gosling for Drive and Blue Valentine. And number one, Jake Gyllenhaal for Nightcrawler. I didn't get any. I got. He didn't even mention The Departed. He didn't mention The Departed at all, which I'm shocked. And he didn't mention Andy Serkis. I was just listening to their podcast the other day, and he talked about how much of a crime it is that Andy Serkis doesn't get recognized for anything. So I went with it. What about Arrival? Like that actually was one of the biggest snubs because she was nominated for everything, and he loves Arrival. <laughs> yeah, I thought about putting that one on my list too. I love the anger we have at. I know. Adam. <laughs> I got Ryan Gosling for Drive. And I got Paul Dano. And he so got he Paul tied. Dano for There Will Be Blood. So this tiebreaker should be Scarlett Johansson. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Because or, you did wait, get uh, Scarlett Johansson. Or who got the higher and, one? Which one was higher on his and list? And you got her, but the wrong performance. And I got Paul Dano at number four, which he also had. I had Ryan Gosling at number... Oh, he, was, he had at number two, but I had at number five. I think Zach wins that. He's got too many tiebreakers. Yeah, you because you've got Paul Dano and There Will Be Blood. You've got Scarlett Johansson, and you've got her, even though he didn't nominate Scarlett Johansson for her. Yeah, and I didn't even have to listen to his podcast. You know, I do. I was, I just did it 
pure. I didn't cheat at all. Adam, Andy Circus, what the heck? No mention all of right. Lord of the Rings or The Departed. I don't know. Todd, you know both of us are going to get texts in the next couple days saying, dude, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> uh, okay, so Zach gets to pick our next uh, topic uh, when we come back together in two weeks. And also when Get Out wins Best Picture, so... Uh, well, that's picking well, that, that's, a movie. That, that's the film, right. Okay, never mind. Which is what we're going to be talking about next. Thank you for the segue. Because our next topic is Oscar trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. He's going to beat me every time. Oscar trivia. So our last time out on Oscar trivia... Zach got his first win, and so he had to pick a film Todd had to review. So, Todd, why don't you tell us about this uh, this French film that you got to experience? Oh, I can't wait for that. Okay, uh, the movie was called La Belle uh, Noiseuse by Jacques Rivette in 1991, which, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Zach said it's a guy who named Showgirls as number one of the decade or something. I mean, because we have to mention that again. It's true. <laughs> Ding! Yep. And, uh, I don't know, watching the movie, it reminded me of uh, the 12-hour-long Out One, Noli Me Tangier, which was a much better movie. I actually didn't know it was the same director until about a half hour through when I looked it up. <laughs> uh, it has a, I don't know, the look of the movie, the uninterrupted cuts, and like all, everything taking place in one room, just like, I mean, it made it very clear that it was the same director, I just didn't actually know that. I was not familiar with his work. Um, about 190 of the 240 minutes are Emmanuel Bayard fully <laughs> nude, which is a, a positive thing. Uh, there's basically no plot to this movie. It's a, it's sort of more about an artist's process more than anything else, but I don't really find the, the lead actor, Michel Piccoli, all that interesting. Uh, there might as well not have been any more characters other than the main two, and it could have, probably could have cut, like, I don't know, an hour and a half off the movie. Uh, I'm not really sure why Zach loves it because it's long, it's tedious, and there are no children in it. And uh, like, there's extended shots of just like a hand painting. I felt like I was watching like Last Days or something like that. But it is French and has Emmanuel Bayard and Ebert liked it, so apparently that's good enough for Zach. Uh, this, but I, I did like the movie overall. The cinematography is really good. Bayard is sensational. It's hypnotic and. Uh, it's not really boring because what you're watching is so visually stimulating. Uh, it's not as good as that one, Noli to Me, Tangier, but it's definitely not the best three-hour movie ever. It's my number 17 of 1991. I gave it three stars. There you go. Yeah, you definitely definitely be, need to be in the right frame of mind for it. Um, I guess I was the night or two I watched it. Um, hey, then it shouldn't <laughs> count it for your list. You said you, said you can't watch one no, part of no, Mommy I watched it and the second night. part I'm on Thursday. Kidding. You said that. You're, well, it's a movie about the artist's <laughs> process, and you you wonder why I liked it. Well, you know, 190 minutes of Manuel Bayar. I mean, you kind of put your finger on it, but it's a great movie. All right. I'm glad my library had it. Well, uh, Todd, you have an opportunity to get him back, depending on how you guys do on Oscar trivia this week. All right, so last time I had a much more uh, specific category for our Oscar trivia. This week I'm going back to what we started with, where I'm going to pick an Oscar year, and we're going to see how well you guys do on the top categories, the major categories for that year. 
So, are you guys ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Your year this year for Oscar trivia is 1987. So again, while you guys are starting to formulate some thoughts around this, I'll remind everyone we are talking about the 1987 films that were nominated at the 1988 Oscars ceremony. So, we about ready to start? I see you guys writing furiously to try and uh, get some notes down. Write it down. That's what wins it for you, right, Zach? Uh, that's my strategy this time. But not last time. We'll see. <laughs> All right. So 1987 Oscars. Zach, you won last time, so you get to pick. Would you like to go first or second? Uh, I'll go first. All right. So best picture. Zach, give me your first uh, first film. The la the winner that year was The Last Emperor. That is correct. Uh, Moonstruck. Um, correct. Broadcast News. Correct. Fatal Attraction. Correct. Hope and Glory. That is correct. You guys sweep the first category. No points awarded. Moving on to our next category. Todd, you get to start out Best Actor. Michael Douglas for Wall Street. That was the winner. Correct. I, I didn't think you were going to Actor. Oh, shoot. Uh... 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 Uh, you're cramming my style here, Terry. Um, shoot. Oh, I'm going to kill myself if I can't get any. Uh, gosh, William Hurt, Broadcast News. Correct. All right. Todd. Uh, yeah. Duh. That means you Jack got the only other one that he has. <laughs> Jack Nicholson and Ironweed. Correct. Um... There's two more on the board. Max von Sydow for Pele the Conqueror. Incorrect. That's nah, the wrong year. Oh, well. Todd gets awarded the first point. Todd, you can get an extra point if you can name the other two. Actually, you can get up to two more points if you can name the other two. Oh, uh, Robin Williams, Good Morning Vietnam. Damn it. That is correct. Ah, screw you, Todd. <laughs> yeah, that's all I got. I wouldn't expect you to get to this last one. The fifth nominee was Marcello Mastroianni for Dark Eyes. Ooh. All right. Next category is Best Actress. Zach, you get to start this one off. Uh, Cher and Moonstruck. Correct. Holly Hunter, Broadcast News. Correct. Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction. Correct. Meryl Streep and Ironweed. Correct. The the film is like Gabby, a, a true story, and the actress is like Sally Kellerman, something like that. Not Sally Kellerman. Oh. I know it's not Sally Kellerman. You get the point, so Todd. What is close. it? I know. It's incorrect. What Todd is gets it, Todd? the point, Todd. Do you have it? No. It's it's Sally something. Sally Kirkland. Kirkland. For Anna. Anna. Ooh, I should get a half point for that. I, I'm going to give you a half a point. Thank you, Terry. <laughs> I deserve it. You got, you got, it was a one name woman's name, and it was Sally K. I'm, I think that's worth a half a point, especially since Todd didn't know what it was. Whatever. And that's, that, that's, uh, that's my call since I'm judge. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
going to Todd first on this one. Best supporting actor. Uh, Sean Connery, Womack, and Untouchables. Correct. Danny Aiello in Moonstruck. Incorrect. What? Vincent Gardenia in Moonstruck. Ah, uh, Vincent Gardenia. Uh, Albert Brooks. Yeah, any more, Todd? Albert Brooks, Broadcast Albert Brooks. News. And I believe it's uh, Denzel and uh, Cry Freedom. Correct. Yeah, I don't know the other one. The other one is Morgan Freeman for Street Smart. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen that. All right. Zach, you've dug yourself a little bit of a hole here. Let's see if you can dig yourself out with Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Olympia Dukakis for Moonstruck. Correct. Ann Archer for Fatal Attraction. Correct. Man, this was a brutal year, Terry. It Good was choice. a brutal year. <laughs> uh, I give up. I got nothing. All right, Todd gets another point. Todd, do you have any of the other three? No, I don't even have a guess. All right. The other three were Anne Southern for The Whales of August, Anne Ramsey for Throw Mama from the Train. Oh, oh. And, Zach, I think you confused this performance with the one from Best Actress. Uh, Norma Alejandro for Gabby, A True Story. Oh, I should get another half point for that. Hey, I'm losing this thing anyway. Come on. Let's be nice. Well, the current score is Make it respectable. eight to one half. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you're not out of it because we still have three more categories to go. And uh, depending on how these go, you could uh, sneak back into this thing. Todd gets to lead off this time with Best Director. Uh, be Bernardo Bertolucci for The Last Emperor. Correct. Norman Jewison for Moonstruck. Correct. Uh, John Borman for Help and Glory. Correct. James L. Brooks for Broadcast News. Incorrect. Go figure. Ouch. I, Todd? <laughs> so I guess Adrian Lin for Fatal Attraction? Correct. I, I, don't, I don't know the other one. I thought it was James L. Brooks. The last one is Lassie Hallstrom for My Life is a Dog. Some very esoteric choices from 1987 voters. Yeah. Okay. So we're doing screenplays? Screenplay, yep. Best original screenplay. Screenplay written directly for the screen. Zach, you get to lead this one off. Uh, Moonstruck. Correct. Uh, broadcast News. Correct. Fatal Attraction. Incorrect. Au revoir, les enfants. That is correct. You get deducted a point for the incorrect pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. Well, Todd, do you have the other two? Uh, I don't know. I guess I could guess Hope and Glory. Correct. Uh, Gabby, A True Story. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> the last one was When in Doubt. Go with Woody Allen. Radio Days. Radio Days. <clears throat> Alright. Last category. Uh, Todd, you lead off. I imagine it was The Last Best Emperor. Adapted Screenplay. Correct. Last Emperor was the winner. The Untouchables? Nope. Incorrect. 
Todd, there's four more out there. Can you find them? Well, I know Full Metal Jacket was nominated. It was his only nomination. That is correct. And I guess I would assume Fatal Attraction was based on a book or something if it wasn't original. Yep, Fatal Attraction. What was it based on? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Something, apparently. Yeah, I don't know what the other ones are. Alright, the other two were My Life is a Dog and The Dead. Oh, that was a Merchant Ivory film, I think. No, it was a John Huston. No, you're right, yeah, it was the, it was John Huston's last film. Written by Tony Huston. That's a person? Lady Angelica Huston. Apparently that's a person. Are you a person? Are you a warehouse? Anyways, in the biggest demol dem demolition of uh, Oscar trivia so far with the final score of 16 to one half, <laughs> Todd has won Oscar trivia for this round. So, Todd, you get to pick a movie that Zach is going to have to watch. Uh, you can, or I have to watch. I mean, you can. Can I have you both watch decide. it? Sure. I mean, it's such a big margin of victory. I feel yeah, like. I think when you win by fifteen and a half points, that. Uh... <laughs> okay, well, the movie I want you guys to watch is my number one of two thousand twelve that I know you guys haven't seen, and I want Adam to watch it too, if possible. And that's Holy Motors. It's a crazy, crazy movie. I want to know what you all think of it. All right. Good choice. So we've got two weeks to uh, watch Holy Motors. Hear that, Adam? <laughs> yeah. Watch Holy Motors and nominate Andy Serkis. <laughs> and Leo. All right. <laughs> or Leo, yeah. Okay, so let's wrap this thing up with our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. So we like to finish off every podcast by giving you a quote to uh, to remember as we go from here. Todd, since you are uh, are basking in your recent victory, why don't you give us your quote? Okay, uh, it comes from one of my movies I mentioned on the on the power rankings, Ghost World, and it's Seymour, which is Steve Buscemi's character. He says, "I've got fifteen hundred seventy eights at this point. I've tried to pare down my collection to just the bare essentials." Because I have 900, or 892 DVDs, and that is actually bearing it down to the essentials. So, I thought that was fitting. But I My collection one of the... has finally surpassed yours, Todd. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I bet you don't own Gabby, a true story. No. Or Anna. Or Anna, a true story. <laughs> Alright, Zach, what's your quote? Well, my quote comes from uh, my... Uh, milestone film from this month which is Kurt and Courtney it occurs when Nick Broomfield has approached uh, the uh, would-be assassin of Kurt Cobain and he's trying to get him to spill the beans about how he killed him and Il Duce says well buy me a beer I might do some more talking and then he laughs maniacally and then on the on the soundtrack you hear Nick Broomfield say and I'm gonna do my impersonation of him I was very confused because El Duce had passed a polygraph test, and even though his, even though his main witness had passed out before its completion, that's it. Awesome. <laughs> uh, and I don't even have to bleep that one. There oh yeah, go. dang it! And El Duce is very foul mouthed. I, I I'll choose a better quote next time. Okay, so my my quote of the day 
comes from the fact that this is episode 13. I started us out with an Apollo 13 quote. I must finish us with an Apollo 13 quote. And I think this kind of goes to all of our thoughts towards this podcast. This comes near the end of the film as uh, the... Uh, as uh, Odyssey is getting ready to re-enter the atmosphere, and they're not sure whether it's going to work. And uh, one of the NASA execs says, this could be the worst disaster NASA's ever experienced. To which Gene Cran says, with all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. And that's how I feel about this podcast. It could be the worst disaster we've ever experienced, but I think it's our finest hour. Not the quote I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say, AM or PM? Very, very AM. Very, very AM. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Uh, we could just have an entire podcast where we quote Apollo 13 the entire time. How'd you figure that out? I can add. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, uh, we are going to sign off uh, from our uh, 13th episode here. And we wish you all a uh, pleasant evening. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.